Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. This week, hearings begin as Congress looks into the causes of the January 6th terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. Political ideology could be a predictor of whether or not you get COVID, and a Republican takes Trump supporters and believers of the big lie to task. But first, the primary election is on Tuesday, and it promises to shape the future of Seattle. I'm joined now by political analyst Ron Dotsauer. And first off, Ron, let's, let's start right here. How much is riding on Tuesday's vote? Well, you know, it's an interesting because the primary turnout after a presidential election is so small, Jeff, um, it doesn't take much to win. For example, in 2017, um, there was only about 165,000 total votes cast in the primary. It matters a lot who the mayor of Seattle is to a certain extent, maybe to a lesser extent, who's on the city council. The interesting thing about Seattle politics, in my opinion, Jeff, is Seattle is an island unto itself. It is an ideologically um, kindred spirit that does not reflect the rest of the state of Washington. As a consequence, in terms of the overall political scheme of things, it may not be that important because it is not seen by the rest of the state as being particularly politically relevant. Anywhere in Stahomish or Pierce or Kitsap, I would even submit in East King County, they're not kindred spirits with what the politics of the city of Seattle is. Again, I think it's just a political island unto itself, Jeff. Is that because the city council and the mayor's office in in recent years and in recent election cycles has shifted so far to the left? Absolutely. I mean, in some of these cases, they're so far to the left on the ideological spectrum that haven't been defined yet, Jeff. And they are so far out of touch with the rest. Let me give you an example. When's the last time anybody from the city of Seattle, either the mayor or a council member, ever got elected to a higher political office in Washington State? Hmm. I can't remember for the last 30 or 40 years, anybody. All mayors that have tried have not been successful running statewide. Um, you know, and it just so that that tells you a lot. There was a day years ago when Seattle City Council elected officials looked to be a good launching pad for political careers. Now, in my opinion, it's a political dead end and you can be a council member or you can be a mayor, but that's it. There is no other future for you politically in the state of Washington because ideologically they are not aligned with the rest of the state. It seems like the King County Council now seems to be the the learning grounds for the higher office. Yeah, because, again, King County is more reflective to a certain extent, not the city of Seattle, but the King County itself does line up a little bit better with the other communities. You know, I used to tell people they could stand on the space top of the space needle and do 360 degrees and see all the voters, votes they needed to win statewide. Okay, but that includes Kitsap, Pierce, Snohomish and King and Seattle is a smaller part of that, in my opinion, and it's the outlier with the rest of the politics. But now for those who live in Seattle, the elections for the two at large city council seats and the mayor are highly important. Is the direction of Seattle going to change based on who is elected on Tuesday? Probably not. If you take a look at the candidates in this race, now, there's, there's one possibility here. For example, I would, I would suggest that Bruce Harrell, while he's been a three-term city council member, as well as he was interim mayor for a little bit, Jeff, 
represents, in my opinion, a more moderate approach to governance. Um, but if you look at the other candidates, most of the other candidates running for mayor and most of the candidates running for city council, okay? For example, um, you have um, Nikita Oliver, who ran for mayor in 2017. And, and she's probably going to win that council seat and, re, uh, and, and replace Gonzalez's seat, okay? So I don't see any big ideological shift in the Seattle City Council. It's possible if Harold were to win, and I think he's going to be one of the two finalists in the, in the general election, I think it's probably going to come down to Bruce Harrell and Lorena Gonzalez with an outside shot that Colleen Echohawk could get in the race late. Again, it's really tricky because there's such a low voter turnout in a double off year primary, Jeff. Um, you can never tell for certain, but most of the stuff I've seen to date looks like a looks like a Harrell um, Gonzalez matchup in the general. And what you're going to see in that case is a more moderate, progressive, slightly left of center Harrell, as opposed to a Lorena Gonzalez, who really represents more of the what I'd call the socialist wing. Of the, of the political philosophy within the city of Seattle. Excuse me, Jeff. There's been so much talk nationwide with the Republican Party and Trump and the divisions that, that he has caused within the GOP and how there's sort of an ideological test amongst Republicans. But if you look at the Democratic Party here in Seattle, they're pretty much the same phenomenon. You have this ideological test of how liberal can you be? And if you're not ultra far to the left, if you're a moderate by any means, you get pushed out. Is that a fair assessment? Hey, Jeff, that is spot on. Okay. There is a litmus test on the left as as divisive, in my opinion, as the litmus test on the right. Okay. Both are, in my opinion, not where, generally speaking, the preponderance of voters are, not only in the state of Washington, but also in the country at large. So, um, I mean, absolutely spot on, you know, that litmus test on the left is just as, just as dangerous, in my opinion, as what you see on the right. And Seattle is the embodiment of that. And as I've said previously, they're out of step. You know, they're a political island unto themselves, left alone to their own devices, the unfortunate part at some level. You know, they've got very substantial budgets and, you know, and they, they can, they can and, and have done some damage. The image of the city of Seattle, I, I'm, I, you know, I have, I have you know, 28 offices all over the West, and, and so I travel a lot. You cannot believe the number of times I'm asked about what's going on in the city of Seattle. And it has a very, it has a, 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 a negative image on its elected officials, and it's unfortunate, um, but that's where we're at, and, and the council – and to a certain extent, the mayor's office has been a capture of the ultra-left socialist working group, if you will, in the city of Seattle. And that's all changed in the last, you know, 10, 20 years or so, Jeff. But the elected offices really only reflect the opinions of the electorate itself. So why has Seattle lurched so far left in recent years? Well, because the, the, the socialist activists on the left have just captured... They have intimidated and and they've done it. They've done a good job of organizing. Okay, and they and because of low voter turnouts, they do a good job of turning out their base. 
and you it's harder it's a lot harder to moderate to to motivate um, moderate even left of center voters to a certain extent to engage at the same level it's the same true as on the left and on the right those voters are much more uh, motivated to participate and that's what's happened in the city of seattle in my opinion outside of the city of seattle or the any are there any other races you're looking at or, or curious to see what might happen no i don't think there's much going on um again this is this is <laughs> this is what we call in the business a double off political cycle jeff and where there's just it's it's a bit of a yawner except if you're a candidate and your family and friend member of a candidate other than that you know, there's just not a lot of interest. And it's unfortunate when you get so few voters determining who these candidates and these office holders are going to be. But that's just the reality. That's the political reality of what we're dealing with, Jeff. All right, Ron Dotz, our political analyst and founder of Strategies 360. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jeff. Take care. Have a good weekend. All right, still to come, a Republican counterpoint to the partisan recount in Arizona when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The partisan recount in Arizona continues more than six months after officials certified the election, which Joe Biden won. Misinformation and disinformation have led many within the Republican Party to believe that Donald Trump won re-election when in fact he did not. Now, the Arizona recount is being conducted by a private firm called Cyber Ninjas, whose owner is a fervent believer in President Trump's false claims. To be absolutely clear, there's been no evidence of widespread voter fraud fraud in the 2020 election, but that hasn't stopped many people from believing otherwise. And this week, the Department of Justice has jumped into the fray, saying the entire audit in Arizona may be illegal. For an expert opinion on these issues, we're joined by Washington Secretary of State Kim Wyman. And let's begin with this. What's your initial reaction to the DOJ's statement? I, I think the Department of Justice really confirmed what election officials across the country on both sides of the aisle have been concerned about with the Arizona forensic audit, um, mainly that it could run afoul of federal law. It could violate people's um, rights. And uh, and we're concerned about the chain of custody that really kind of got obliterated when election officials had to give up custody of the ballots and the voting machines. What makes this audit so problematic? Well, it's uncharted territory in that the, the audit didn't come from a legislative change where the Arizona legislature rewrote their laws and passed the laws in the way you would normally pass a law, writing a bill, taking it to the governor, having the governor sign it, and having both Republicans and Democrats debate it. Um, so when you circumvent that that process and you just start making up the rules as you go, it starts to cast out on the entire process because the laws in place sort of apply, but don't. And, uh, you know, I think that just that direction of making things up has um, really cast out on the integrity of the process post-election day. Now, elections are administered by the state. So what truly can the federal government do here? Well, it, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution does give states the authority to conduct elections in each of the the 50 states. However, federal law does apply. So Congress can enact laws and has enacted laws since the 1960s uh, that affect how we conduct elections in each state. For example, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that applies to this day. Uh, the Help America Vote Act, the National Voter Registration Act, all of those federal laws do in fact 
dictate to states how local governments can control ballots and what they have to do in any federal election. Now, you mentioned that this private audit to be conducted or that is still being conducted by the group Cyber Ninjas could put people's rights at risk. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a couple of of, a couple of layers. The first one is the group had originally talked about going door to door to voters houses to verify that, you know, John Smith, that's that voted on this address on this state in the election actually still lived there and and was actually eligible to vote. There are uh, laws, particularly in the Voting Rights Act, that preclude that behavior because historically that type of behavior has been used to suppress voters. It was used particularly in the South as a way to keep black voters from engaging in elections and going to a person's house and, and intimidating them is against the law and it is against federal statute. So I think it's those types of things that um, the Department of Justice is really pointing out that be very careful here in how you do this audit, because if you start doing activities that are intimidating to voters, you would be in violation of federal law. But aren't recounts supposed to be conducted by the state? I mean, this seems very unusual for a private group, a private company to do this. Absolutely. Uh, You know, here in Washington state, we do audits at every level and every step of the process from the moment counties start working and laying out the ballots to uh, the certification of the election by the canvassing board. So um, audits are a normal part of business in Washington state. And if a, a election contest is within a half a percent, uh, it triggers an automatic recount. Um, So these are all normal parts of business. What's happening in Arizona and this idea of a forensic audit is really something created um, out of thin air. Forensic audits are things that are used in the auditing world. CPAs are very familiar with them, but there again, process and procedure and peer review that is done on those is an established uh, process well before you are actually auditing. And this audit was not um, not created with any of those things in mind and um, isn't transparent in any way. So it's, it's very difficult for the public to really have any kind of um, confidence that the idea of this audit was to verify the results. I, I think that most people view this as a political activity. Well, and conspiracy theories are also a big part of this audit. Workers are looking for secret watermarks, bamboo fibers, and old the fantasy that ballots were shipped in from China. How can election officials even counter such claims? Well, that's what we do in every election. Uh, Election officials' jobs is to inspire confidence and to be transparent in the process. So here in Washington state, we have paper ballots. We can go back and hand count those paper ballots. We, in fact, do go back and hand count those uh, paper ballots in uh, in random audits that are after Election Day. And so um, we can always reconcile those paper ballots to the electronic results that we produce on Election Night and in the uh, weeks afterwards. So this is a normal course of action, and this is what we do. Uh, what's happening in Arizona is, is, like I said, really more political theater than it is um, something that's official in the election world. And And it it is undermining confidence, certainly, in Republicans across the country. Now, here in Washington, Lauren Culp made very similar accusations of voter fraud after he lost to Jay Inslee in a landslide. Did his claims have any merit here? Well... 
I'll say the same thing I've been saying since December. Uh, as a former law enforcement officer, if, uh, if Lauren Culp believes that fraudulent activity happened, he's alleging a felony was, uh, was committed in the uh, general election in 2020. And he needs to bring that information to the FBI, to my office, to law enforcement, so we can prosecute it. And as of yet, I have yet to have any any crimes brought to my attention. The FBI has not either. And at this point, you either need to provide the information or you need to stop talking about it because what you're sharing isn't true and isn't real. So what do you say to those who still believe there was widespread voter fraud, whether it's here in Washington state or elsewhere across the country? At this point, you're alleging felony level crimes. You need to bring that documentation that you have of people voting who were illegally casting ballots, people who are voting on behalf of dead people or stuffing the ballot box. Those are all Class C felonies in Washington state. If you have evidence of that, bring it to my office, bring it to the FBI. And if you don't, you need to stop spreading it because it's misinformation and it's not true. You're a Republican. How does this make you feel about the party you've belonged to your entire life? Well, you know, I, I'm a Republican because I believe in the principles that Ronald Reagan espoused 40 years ago. And, you know, I want to see my party get back to those, the, the rule of law, uh, representative government that uh, that is smaller and is closer to the people and a strong national defense. And, uh, you know, we need to get back to principles that, that really define the Republican Party and, and stop reliving the 2020 election. Look forward to 2022 and 2024. Is what's going on in Arizona damaging the GOP's prospects, do you think? I don't think it's helping. Uh, certainly what's happened from the email that we receive in my office, and I'm sure that this report will generate more of it, um, is that a swath of the Republican Party doesn't believe that Joe Biden was elected. Uh, that is in direct result of the, the misinformation and disinformation that's been spread by a number of people uh, supportive of President Trump. And uh, and yes, I think it's undermining. I think it's making some, uh, some in the party question why they're members and and i'm sure we're going to see an exodus of of good republicans leave because they don't believe uh some of the things that are happening in the party have you questioned your place in the party oh i do every day and i i think that's been true my whole political career though and i think that's a good healthy thing but with that said i you know i know why i'm a republican uh there are those that that call me a rhino or republican in name only and you know actually the irony is that these are people that are probably the rhinos themselves and so at this point uh what i'm going to keep doing is doing my job on behalf of the citizens of washington state to the best of my ability i'm going to represent everyone in the state because that was what i was elected to do and uh the fate of the republican party is in the hands of the those who uh who are running it and i'm going to continue to be the Re ronald reagan republican i always have been looking forward a little bit we've got the primary election coming up next week on on tuesday august 3rd are you all prepared for that? Are you ready to go? And uh, what are you expecting to see? Uh, yes, we are. We're working very closely with the 37 counties that have primary elections on Tuesday. Uh, they're working hard processing ballots and uh, voters are starting to return them, albeit a little bit slowly. I hope that uh, by Tuesday we have higher turnout than we do today.
What are we seeing so far? So far, it's coming in. The ballots are coming in very slowly. Uh, statewide, we have about 11% of the ballots have been returned. Uh, there is a new tool on the Secretary of State's website that voters can use to uh, look up return rates and demographics about your county, uh, who, how many people have returned ballots and what the age breakdown of those are. Um, so again, one more layer of transparency for voters to know uh, how ballots are coming back in. But uh, I hope that, that voters get engaged soon because these are the races that determine things that really affect your daily life. You know, city and town councils, school boards, fire commissioners determine how fast a first responder gets to you in an emergency, what the quality of the roads are in your, your neighborhood and what the books, what books your kids read in school. So it's important that voters engage. And I, I want to remind people to get their ballots in by eight o'clock election night into a ballot drop box or with a, a postmark of election day. I know you're loath to do it, but I'm forced to ask it. What kind of turnout are you expecting on Tuesday? Uh, you know, right now, I'm, I'm hoping we can get to 25%. I think that uh, we're, we're tracking to get there, but uh, that's pretty sad that only one in four voters are choosing to participate this year uh, when these races are so important. And, and is that expected to go up in the general? Yes, I would imagine that by the general election in November, we will see higher turnout. But even then, it will probably be closer to one in two voters. All right, Secretary of State Kim Wyman, thank you so much for your time as always. Thank you, Jeff. When we come back, Republicans blocked an independent commission, but Congress begins its own investigation into the attack on the U.S. Capitol when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot held its first hearing on Tuesday, and there were many emotional moments. For example, Representative Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois. You guys may like individually feel a little broken. You guys all talk about the effects you have to deal with and you know you talk about the impact of that day. But you guys won. You guys held. He was talking to several Capitol Police officers who were there to testify. Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington DC and you don't see that kind of emotion every day in a congressional hearing. You don't see a hearing like this ever. I, I've covered Washington for quite some time. I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, four officers who deserve gold medals and pay for the rest of their lives and go live in an island somewhere. I mean, these are guys that put their lives on the line. For the people who were sitting on that panel, the members of Congress, along with all the other Republicans who have basically said, there's nothing to see here. We don't want to hear about this. This is a partisan witch hunt. Uh, there was nothing partisan about this today. This was a, a team of people, two Republicans, uh, handpicked by Nancy Pelosi because the Republican Party, apparently, uh, through its uh, leader, Kevin McCarthy, wanted to put partisans uh, on there to make this a partisan investigation. Folks like Jim Jordan, who would have gotten up, and we know this because he's he does it repeatedly, saying, well, what about the Black Lives Matters protesters? Uh, there's no one who thinks that people who rioted, who uh, burned down buildings, who hurt police in any of those protests last summer should not be prosecuted. So this is a red herring that he keeps putting up there. What is unfortunate is that three prominent Republicans, Gosar, Matt Gates, and uh, there's one other woman from Georgia, were in front of the uh, Justice Department. And they were complaining not about the attacks on these police officers, not about 
how more than 140 some odd officers were gravely wounded in this or that some folks died in this or that democracy was at its brink. They were out in front of the Justice Department worried about how the folks in prisons were treating the people who had been arrested. Nothing about how democracy was attacked on January 6th or any of the people who had anything to do with it. Uh, so it was an extraordinary day here in Washington uh, to see those two stark contrasts. The other thing that's interesting is that uh, almost to a person, if you asked anyone on Capitol Hill, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, uh, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, did you watch the hearings today? Do you have any reaction? Every single one of them said the same thing. I was too busy in meetings to watch. That is a bit shocking, but it's not every Republican. We talked about Representative Adam Kissinger as well as Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Here's what she had to say in talking with Sergeant Akeen Logonel. Officer Gunnell, when you um, think Sorry. about that and, and share with us the vivid memory of, of the cruelty and the violence of the assault that day, um, and then you hear... Uh, former President Trump say, quote, it was a loving crowd. There was a lot of love in the crowd. How does that make you feel? It's upsetting. It's a pathetic excuse for his behavior for something that he himself helped to create. I'm still recovering from those hugs and kisses that day that he claimed that so many writers, terrorists, with assaulting us that day. More emotional testimony, but even beyond that, from the political end of things, it looks like Representative Kissinger and Cheney have signed their GOP death warrants. Yeah, there are Republicans who are demanding that they be stripped of their committee assignments for, I'm not certain why, other than they are upholding their oath of office to get to the truth and protect and defend the Constitution as well as uh, protect and defend the institution of Congress. Uh, for that, that is a uh, excommunicable offense to some Republicans, including their leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, who has also been saying the same thing. The weird thing is you'd have to have the entire House vote to get them out of those positions there. And the Republicans don't have the majority to do that. So the Democrats could just say they get to stay in their positions. Also, if indeed they did succeed in removing Cheney and Kinziger, Nancy Pelosi can just put him right back in, the, in those positions. So the Republicans don't have a whole lot of power. Turning back to the investigation itself by the committee, what are we hearing? What's new coming out of this uh, this first meeting? Well, I think th the most extraordinary part of this was hearing the testimony of these officers uh, literally talking about how uh, one African-American officer saying he never in all his time in law enforcement was he called the N-word. And uh, you hear, uh, I think I think we heard some of that on tape uh, of some of the of some of the uh, folks screaming that at some of the officers. We hadn't seen the people who were setting up the gallows and saying it's time to, to start bringing these people out here. Uh, we hadn't seen some of this raw footage that was just gut-wrenching to watch where uh, you had officers literally fighting for their lives to defend the people inside that bu that building. Uh, so there was a lot of that that was new. What's very interesting in all this is that these officers, one of them said, look, when you go after a hitman, uh, if, if someone's accused of being a hitman, you uh, prosecute that person, you arrest them, and you try to put them in prison. But you don't ignore the person who ordered the hit. And he says, I hope that this committee does that. Uh, he's referring to President Trump. 
So if there's going to be a subpoena, and we've heard suggestions that they would uh, subpoena some of these uh, members of Congress who uh, were reported to have been giving tours to some of these insurrectionists the day beforehand in a building that was closed to the public because of COVID at the time. Also to President Trump, to Kevin McCarthy, because he apparently talked to the president that day to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. What's interesting is that in all likelihood, these folks will probably ignore these subpoenas, knowing that they can drag this through the courts long enough to just make this a moot point, which is exactly what Eric Holder did, who was the attorney general for uh, President Obama during the Fast and Furious controversy, the gun running controversy, where Republicans who were then in charge of the House wanted him to testify about what the Justice Department knew about this. Uh, Eric Holder refused, saying that they have no business asking about these internal investigations. Uh, Eric Holder ran out the clock on that. The GOP lost their majority. Uh, This went through the courts for several years, and long after the GOP was out of the majority in the House, the courts basically told Eric Holder, "Uh, sorry, you lost this case. You have to testify. Well, there's no one left to testify now because the Democrats are in charge. So it is conceivable that that could happen as well if they try to subpoena some of these Republicans. So this appears to be all for show, pretty much, for the political theater of it all heading into the 2022 elections. Well, that's what Republicans are saying. Uh, There are many Democrats who are saying, no, we need to find out what happened. And there are some very substantial things. Why uh, was there an order signed? I've, I've seen a piece of paper signed by the acting secretary of defense that basically uh, made it impossible for the National Guard to do anything, even if they were deployed, uh, saying they couldn't carry weapons. They couldn't interact with uh, law enforcement, do their job. They were just there as backup. Uh, so there are some serious questions as to who made those orders happen. Uh, why wasn't the police prepared for this year? Why weren't their fences up? Why was some of the intelligence ignored. There's a lot of serious questions to prevent something like this from happening again that this committee hopes to get to the bottom of. But what can Congress really do about it? They're not an investigative body, really, when it comes to any criminal charges. No, they're not. But they can uh, pass laws that would uh, increase funding for police, uh, make rules for the House that and the Senate that would say, for any future protests, we need to do X, Y, and Z. One of the officers said uh, when the Black Lives Matters protests were in Washington, D.C., there was National Guard. There was all kinds of reinforcement around the Capitol and the White House. And he wants to know, why didn't it happen this time? All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you as always. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, if you're a Republican, statistically, you're more likely to get COVID. I'll explain when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge. Look, COVID continues to ravage the nation with yet another wave of infections. In fact, some people are now calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Joining me now is Philip Bump from the Washington Post, and he's been covering this. And uh, some of the statistics really kind of show a sharp divide between political ideology in rural, more red parts of the country, COVID infection rates are higher as opposed to more urban and liberal parts of the country. So, Philip, how, how much does this go to vaccine hesitancy? Uh, it's a great deal. I mean, we saw basically since uh, mid-April, early May, that there was a big divide that was forming between more Republican parts of the country and more Democratic parts of the country in terms of willingness to be vaccinated. We've seen that reflected in polling. Republicans are more hesitant about being vaccinated. And it was therefore almost inevitable that we would at some point see a divide in new cases. Now we're seeing that the rate at which new infections are occurring in mostly red counties, that is counties voted for Trump last year, 
is about twice as high as blue county. That is a pretty stark difference. And it, how is the government or, or various state governments and local governments trying to respond to this? Well, it's sort of interesting because there's been this huge investment, uh, particularly on the political right, among Republicans in disparaging these sorts of containment measures which might help, things like mask wearing, uh, things like mandating vaccines. But now with cases rising, we're seeing people like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida in something of a bind because they don't want to suddenly have to advocate for new containment measures. Uh, but at the same time, they need to get more people vaccinated. And so we're seeing more calls for vaccination because the alternative is either out of control uh, spread of the, of the disease or having to do some of these measures that Republicans have so adamantly fought against. One of the more interesting notes on this that I have seen is that Fox News for so long had many of its hosts just pushing the vaccine hesitancy on it and, and, and being very skeptical about uh, the COVID-19 inoculations. But that's changed quite a bit. I wouldn't say it's changed that much, actually. I mean, we've seen some measure, some uh, comments from Fox News hosts, uh, both hosts of their opinion shows and some of the hosts of their, of their actual uh, news coverage uh, expressing that the vaccine ought to be uh, something that people should consider getting. But we've also seen that being pulled back. Sean Hanley had this comment that he made last week where he said, oh, you know what, I, I'm pro-vaccine. But then he very quickly was like, I'm not saying anyone has to go get it. We've seen Tucker Carlson repeatedly hosting people who are, are vaccine skeptics and raising doubts, unfounded doubts about the vaccine. He continues to do that. And so I think this still is a problem that exists. And there's also these further right cable networks that are even worse. Talking Newsmax, One America, that sort of thing? That's exactly right. Now, they have very small viewerships, but what polling has shown is that those viewerships are much more resistant to getting vaccines. Is this specific to the COVID vaccines, or are the people resistant to vaccines in general, whether it's the MMR or the various flu shots that we get every year? It's a good question. We haven't seen a lot of polling on that, since obviously those are, are less salient to the current political discussion. But there are certainly people who are not conservatives uh, who are hesitant about getting the vaccine. Some of them are people who have long been skeptical uh, of getting vaccines. That certainly is the case. Uh, but that we're seeing such a broad divide that is falling on partisan lines suggests that for this vaccine, at least, politics does play a role. All right, Philip Bump with The Washington Post. You can read more at WashingtonPost.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Still to come, it's the return of the masks when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelum. Here's Greg Herschel. President Biden announcing that all federal employees and on-site contractors must now show they are vaccinated against COVID. And if they don't, they'll be required to wear a mask, do social distancing, and undergo weekly or twice-weekly testing. He's hoping other employers will do the same. Every day, more businesses are implementing their own vaccine mandates. And the Justice Department has made it clear that it is legal to require COVID-19 vaccines. ABC's Karen Travers is with us from Washington, D.C. What else did the president have to say, Karen? Yeah, so a couple things here as the president was talking about the need to really step up and, and put new efforts out to get people vaccinated. You know, the president says there are big concerns about the Delta variant, but people who are vaccinated should feel good about the effectiveness, but we need more Americans to get vaccinated. So a couple different things before I get to the federal government uh, requirement. The president announced yesterday that the government will reimburse small and medium-sized businesses for offering their employees paid leave to get a family member vaccinated. This expands on what they've been doing since April about giving companies money to give their own workers time off. The president also called on state and local governments to use COVID relief funding that's already gone out to them to offer $100 to people who are now getting vaccinated. 
president says he understands that might sound unfair, but if incentives work, we've got to do it. Now, on the federal government employee thing, this is not a mandate, but it's a requirement that federal government employees, including members of the military, show proof of vaccination. If they don't, they're going to have to wear a mask, do social distancing, have restrictions on work travel, and undergo weekly testing. The next step would be requiring it for the military. That's something the president says they're looking into. And the question is how and when they'll add the COVID-19 vaccine to the list of the required vaccinations for military. This is not going over well with the president's political opponents. Yeah, no surprise. You know, and I think the White House yesterday was really emphasizing that you know, they're not calling this a mandate. The president isn't saying get a vaccine or else you're fired. Get a vaccine or else you can't come to the office. They're saying you have to show proof and then it will be pretty inconvenient for you if you don't show that proof. But there's been some pushback from unions representing different groups of uh, federal employees, from some law enforcement, postal workers, uh, saying that this is not right. But the president, the White House, say they have wide latitude when it comes to the federal government. Military will be an interesting push. We've heard from the defense secretary that he's not comfortable mandating the vaccine right now before it has full approval from the FDA. But knowing that that is coming, perhaps in the next couple of weeks, the president says they're preparing for that point when they will make it mandatory for members of the military. Karen, wildfires are a huge concern here Mm -hmm. in the West right now, and this is something the president will be talking about today. Yeah, and talking to your governor, as well as governors from other states impacted by wildfires. The White House says the president will discuss the ongoing effort by the federal government working with state governments to strengthen wildfire prevention, preparedness, and response efforts. So we're going to see that uh, late morning our time. The president and the vice president will both take part in that conversation. All right, Karen, thanks for the update. ABC News White House correspondent, Karen Travers. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and others. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.